0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're talking about something that is really important to Mormon fundamentalism. I would say one of the most important scriptures or uh, revelations or prophecies or commandments, depending on how you want to look at it, in Mormonism. It's the one mighty and strong doctrine or theology or revelation or scripture. And to talk about it today, I've brought on Mithrin, who's been on the podcast a few times. Mithrin, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. Glad to be
1: back, Lindsay. Thank you.
0: So, Mithrin, tell us about yourself. Tell us why your name is Mithrin and why you're here and why you're talking about this topic on this podcast.
1: Uh, Yeah, so... Uh, my name, Mithrin, comes from – I needed to create a new online presence, uh, and I reached down to the textbook that was on my left. It was a math book, and the author's name was actually Mithrin. I thought that was such a cool name. I needed to use it online, and it's it's been that way ever since. I'm known probably the most for my historical posts on uh, the ex-Mormon pod – or ex-Mormon – subreddit the mormons subreddit and on the lds subreddit once upon a time ago um i have two books coming out this month one of them is the abcs of science and mormonism and we uh, i delve into all the falsifiable verifiable points of mormonism including if tea is good for you the weight of the brass plates fighting styles and what sorts of weaponry were available in time periods and locations with actual scientific rigor applied. The other one that's coming out is called I Should Start a Cult. It's a little bit more of the snarky side of of me, uh, and it's all new content. It's a how-to guide and a little bit of a modest proposal. The reason that that this particular topic really, when I heard you were doing it, that that it excited me, is that it plays into my own history – Back in high school, I watched. A, well, I just read this scripture, and I was wondering who this one mighty and strong could be. When we watched a video uh, in my law enforcement class on the John Singer and Adam Swap uh, clan, and and they tie into this scripture. And then my mother uh, was proposed to by Arvind Shreve. Uh, to be his wife. And and he also played in with this. So it is uh, it tied in with my own history and, and how I uh, think about things, uh, as well as it's just a fun topic. So I'm very glad to be here.
0: Yeah. And you've been here for talking about Heber J. Grant. And I forget the other one. Do you remember what it was? Uh,
1: Lauren Lauren Woolley?
0: Lauren Woolley. That's right. Woolley? Okay. So, yeah. Woolley. Thank you. You have some background On this topic, do you want to sort of give us your bona fides of being associated with fundamentalism?
1: I did that in the other one. I don't remember exactly what you're digging for, but uh, for example, I we lived down in West Texas, and I I wanted to go visit the uh, the FLDS compound down there. I had a very strong impression that I should go and tell them that the government was going to raid them about a month before. Uh, the whole raid went down there, so that's that's one of my connections, but uh, but mostly it comes through uh, just my data and research.
0: Yeah, so you have an interest in this like I do. You're sort of famous on in sort of the ex-Mormon world for being the go-to history guy, and so you and I thought it would be fun to talk about this doctrine because this is—it's it's canonized in LDS scripture, but it's almost become folk doctrine because of the way that it's played out. So we're going to talk about the history. I'm going to be reading from Ogden Kraut, who, um, if you listen to this podcast, you know is like the Bruce R. McConkie of Mormon fundamentalism. He is one of the biggest scriptorians or theologians from Mormon fundamentalism, taking all the quotes in history and tying it together. So I've got his interpretation. We've got Mithrin's stuff. Uh, so Mithrin, why don't we just start? getting into the history. Do you want to walk us into this revelation? Actually, sure. first of all, are we going to, what should we call it for the podcast? Are we going to call it a revelation prophecy? What do you think? I like
1: how you said it because there's different, I mean, it, it applies to different groups, different ways. Some people see it as a prophecy. Some people just see it as a scripture verse that you read over and skip because it's not scripture mastery. And other people see this as a, as a direct revelation of that, that, that's very key. So I think I like how you're saying it, honestly.
0: So we'll just go through the whole shebang every time. Okay. So <laughs> why don't I'm you,
1: verbose. I like lots of words,
0: but well, guess what? So does WW Phelps. So that's a good True. transition into, why don't you walk us in? You have some background that you, that you dug up that I think is really interesting on this.
1: Uh, do you want to start with me, or do you want to uh, start with? Let's just start with by reading the scripture. Is that fair?
0: Oh yeah, let's let's tell everybody what this is to begin with, and, and give us the citation where it appears in canonized LDS scripture.
1: For for all of you at home who have your, your triple com, please open it to DNC eighty five. So in Doctrine and Covenants eighty five verses seven and eight, it reads, "And it shall come to pass that I, the Lord God, will send one mighty and strong." Holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth, to set in order the house of God, and to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints whose names are found, and the names of their fathers and the names of their children, enrolled in the book of law of God. While that man who is called of God and appointed, that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God, shall fall by the shaft of death like a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning it's pretty pretty brilliant imagery there it's actually uh, kind of poetic and and strong there's no no weakness in those two verses
0: it's and yeah it's it's definitely probably appeals to more of the i'm trying to think of a word the word that's coming to mind is violent strains of mormonism but that's not necessarily accurate i would say People More.
1: who like black and white, people who like it to be all on or all off. This is very uh,
0: verse, strong things verbiage. like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great dialogue article that we're going to link to that Bill Shepherd wrote about the history of this and and sort of this. He, it's called "To Set the House, To Set and Order the House of God: The Search for the Elusive One Mighty and Strong." So we'll link to that. Um, Mithrin, have you seen that?
1: I have and and uh, read through a bit of it as I was prepping for this. so yeah, it's a great article. I highly encourage everyone to read what, what, what you've got there.
0: okay so let's let's give this some context. This comes from a 19 an 1832 revelation that right. Joseph Smith gave and WW. Phelps pen do you want do you want to get into the history or do you want me to cover this part?
1: No, I'll go ahead and and jump in here, and then we can uh, we can banter back and forth as we go. So this is the 27th of November, 1832, as mentioned, and Jackson County, Missouri, and Kirtland were both separate locations. The The Colesville Saints that that knew Joseph up in Palmyra had been sent on to Jackson County, Missouri, while uh, Sidney's group had remained in Kirtland that uh, joined the church along with Sidney Rigdon, and there was kind of a split between the two. And Joseph had sent Bishop Edward Partridge to kind of organize all these people and prep Jackson County, Missouri for where the saints were going to build Zion. And he was given some really vague direction and, and some kind of bad middle management. And he had to like deal with real human nature. And a lot of what I'm going to say here comes from a blog and I'm sure we'll link to that as well. I'll send The link onto you, Lindsay, and you can post it, uh, that is a descendant of Edward Partridge who has compiled all of his notes and letters and records and some of the church history to try to prove how hard Edward tried to implement and just how bad the directions were that he received. And, And so I think it gives a little context because this revelation is given almost certainly for Edward Partridge, and we'll get into that detail later. So this is – during this 1832 time period, uh, Bishop Edward Partridge had the difficult task of administering the program of consecration. The, the difficult part is portioning stewardships among the people. He had to know the people really well. He had to know, you know what they were good at, how they did things. And there was a little bit of a to-do about how he was implementing things. In particular, he was asking people to give all of the money to to the church and then redistributing it without passing – what's the word I'm looking for? The lease, the deed of the property. He was not – he was keeping the deeds to the property. And the thing is they had tried this on a farm previous, and when they didn't have the deeds, the, the law of consecration broke down. Everyone had to leave the farm, and the farmer who left the law of consecration got to keep all the improvements that were made. And so Joseph was very nervous about how deeds were handled, and so there was a little bit of a dispute that was going on. And Sidney, being kind of the right-hand man of Joseph at this point, began to contend with Edward Partridge over this as well as some personal issues – He began to write some really virulent stuff about Edward, including that he was pocketing the money, all sorts of things. So they drive out and they have a conference in Jackson County, Missouri. And during the second day of the conference, it was mostly concerned with financial matters. And there was a dispute between Edward and Sidney where all of this kind of comes out. And uh, Edward Partridge, Bishop Partridge, comes forward and he admits – that somewhere in all the hustle and excitement of setting up the entirety of the church in Zion, he'd lost about sixty bucks. It was sixty dollars, he forgot thirty dollars in travel, he's he's not sure what to do, and and the conference goes on about this for quite a while, and then eventually it, it's decided by the members that the other twenty nine dollars they can't account for is just forgiven him because uh, you know, and it was more money back then. Don't get me wrong. we're we're talking a couple of hundred bucks. But uh, all that those letters about how he was pocketing the money come down to they couldn't figure out where where twenty nine dollars went. So in March of eighteen thirty two, there were four hundred and two members of the church living in Jackson County. John Whitmer was chosen as the moderator during this whole conference. Oliver Cowdery is the clerk. He's the one who's writing down all of this. The specific charges against him had finally narrowed down to three. Edward had handled church funds improperly. He had insulted the prophet Joseph and that he had assumed authority over the prophet in violations of God's law. And that's a fancy Sidney Rigdon way of saying that he had decided – how to handle these deeds in a way that Sydney disapproved the long story short is that they decide that uh, Brother Joseph's forgiven him, the, the $29 is all the expenses are, and they concluded with the following statement, resolved that whereas the duty of a disciple of Christ is to promote harmony and brotherly love and not at any time imprudently prefer charges and demand confession and settlement in of the same in absence of a brother after having had a privilege of doing the same face-to-face and more especially after sitting in conference in the name of the Lord and communing together in sacrament, he's forgiven. And this one mighty and strong revelation falls right in the middle of when Sidney asks Joseph for help dealing with Edward. So if we go back to that revelation, what we see is that it's pretty darn specific about this person who is setting apart the lots and arranging the inheritances of the saints whose names are found in their fathers. And that if he doesn't – I think – my personal take on this is that verse 8 is talking directly to Edward Partridge. While that man who is called of God and appointed, that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God, shall fall by the shaft of death. He, he isn't doing it the way that Joseph set up. And this whole thing is about that he'll replace Edward if he can't do it the right way. Uh, just a couple of notes about the difficulties that Edward Partridge was, was running against. And then we can uh, kind of move over. So Edward... These Colesville saints were not wealthy. They were some of the poorest individuals uh, to to be in the church. And they basically set up a big tent city outside of uh, the the current residents of Jackson County, Missouri. And the local residents started to complain about these people who, who didn't have houses. Edward writes about needing a blacksmith uh, if Joseph could please send one, because they don't have any blacksmith to be able to build things. They're trying to build houses with no iron. He he asks for a stone worker as well, because there's no one who knows how to do stone. And as people join the church, they keep getting sent to Zion, and they keep wanting to go to Zion because that's the special place. And the poorest people are going there first, because this land has just been taken from the Indians. And if you if you get in and start building a house you can you can lay claim and get it kind of like the Oklahoma Oklahoma land rush if you're familiar with that. So Edward asks for them to create a recommend so that not everyone can just come up for no reason whatsoever but that they can get a recommend uh, to come up design. And this recommend is entirely financially based. And this is the origin of the temple recommend we have today. There's no mention of a recommend anywhere in conjunction with the temple. Uh, this is the first mention that, that exists. And, and it's this set of requirements that morphs into our, our temple requirements throughout the uh, – the various handbooks of instruction from the 1900s forward. So this is the origin of, of the temple recommend, and it's entirely how much money you make. One of the interesting things is that Joseph Smith, under this time period, if you take away the 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 money donated through tithing to the church, couldn't have filled out the recommend. The Smiths could never have made it to Zion. Anyway, point is is that he has all these poor people, tent cities. He's trying to to divvy out what people do and how people, and trying to make blacksmiths out of people who've never done it before. He, and he's really struggling. And that very natural, very human dealing with people's problems, the poorest people, of course, want everything in common. The richest people, as they get richer, don't want to share as much. It's very much the sort of thing we see go on in politics uh, all the time. And he doesn't get much instruction of of a strong foundation. So that's kind of the setup for this particular verse is in the letters of all of this going on. Is that fair?
0: Yep, that's a, that's a good introduction. And I'm going to link to Ogden Kraut's website because he talks about this too. And of course, he is citing the history of the church, which backs up exactly what Mithrin is saying. All of this has to do, it's very much tied in with Edward, Edward Partridge, which again has such a polygamous connection because as we've covered at the very beginning of this podcast in the early episode. Two of Edward Partridge's daughters marry Joseph Smith.
1: Yes, after he's dead.
0: After he's dead. So, um, But that's important context because all of this land, all of this this struggle, all of this will come into play later on in that story. But okay, continue.
1: Uh, Just a, a side note, it was in Thompson, Ohio, the farm of Lehman Copley, where he takes the land and runs and leaves the law of consecration. If anyone wants to Google that later, I just wanted to throw out the name of the farm. I found it in my notes. Oh, Thanks. Um, so, this revelation, uh, I guess we need to we need to vindicate um, Edward before we go much further. Less than two years later, on November seventh, eighteen thirty-five, the Lord stated he was well pleased with my servant Edward Partridge because of the integrity of your heart in laboring in my vineyard. This revela- this revelation, was not canonized as part of the doctrine and covenants. But it also added that Bishop Partridge's sins were forgiven. So there's this non-canonized revelation that, that ties to showing that, that this was all resolved, that this one mighty and strong, all of this. And some people out there, I'm sure, are saying, but you didn't actually tie it to the one mighty and strong. But there's a letter in 1834 from Oliver Cowdery, who, remember, he was the clerk writing all of this down for that whole debate and, and situation where he quoted, quotes Joseph Smith as saying the threat of being smitten was conditional. Brother Joseph says, this is quoted in the letter, Brother Joseph says that the item in this letter that says the man that is called, etc., and puts forth his hand to steady the ark of God does not mean that at any time, that any had at the time, but it was given for a caution to those in high standing to beware, lest they should fall by the vivid shaft of death, as the Lord has said." So this – these two verses are tied together by Oliver Cowdery's letter to say this is a conditional. Either he can shape up and become this one mighty and strong who gives the inheritances or that same man who is called of God and appointed will fall like the shaft – shall fall by the shaft of death like a tree that is smitten if he steadies the hand of the ark of of God. So – we have a very clear trail as to who this is talking about in the very early days. Now, you have the W.W. W. Phelps letter that you wanted to read, and that plays in right at this point.
0: Yeah, okay, so W.W. W. Phelps, as many of you know, he's, he was an early church member. He was very much involved with Joseph Smith. He was excommunicated, I think, three times and then rejoined the church after it each time. And he was often scribe and a, I guess Wikipedia calls him a ghost writer for Joseph Smith. He was very much involved with a lot of the early church happenings. He was part of the Council of 50. He, he was there when Joseph was murdered. He um, followed Brigham Young for, for a time, but he was there recording this revelation
1: most people probably know him for writing songs in the hymnal, but on the ghostwriter, I'm just going to interject really quickly because I found what they mean. Uh, the When Joseph Smith describes Zion, W.W. Uh, w. Phelps is there, and he gives this really beautiful description of the land and, and gives it as a revelation from God on on how the saints are going to settle it. And you can actually find almost word for word the same description in W.W. W. Phelps' journal from the day previous. So that's the, where the ghostwriter comes from, is that Joseph gave a revelation from God that just happens to be in his his note, his diary. Go on, sorry.
0: Right, and W. W. Phelps is one of the people that writes down the revelation, the supposed la- uh, early polygamy revelation about uh, marrying Lamanites, and it was supposed to be the early polygamy revelation. So, He's very much involved with this. And as you said, he has written a lot of hymns. Some of the most famous are Praise to the Man, "O God, the Eternal Father, The Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning. What else?
1: Some of the little ones. Come All You Saints of Zion.
0: Redeemer of Israel. That's another one. Um, Yeah, there's several. And he, he, so he writes this letter. Do you want to read, I mean, the letter is long. And of course, Orson Pratt is going to take, is it Orson Pratt? Yeah, Orson Pratt who reads it later. Yeah, Orson Pratt is going to take only portions of his letter and to to make up the scripture later on.
1: Uh, What I do want to say is that this is one of those where it gets hidden because of the number sequence in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section fifty-one is the actual revised law of consecration that comes after this DNC eighty-five threatening couple of scriptures. When So, they'd been running without any direction really before this. Uh, but because that comes in Section 51, sometimes people think that, he, well, he had all this instruction and it's really clear. How could he not run it correctly? That's not chronological. So, Section 51 comes because of this conference and because of this dispute.
0: We're going to, the letter's really long. We're going to link to it um, on Ogden Kraut's site. And we're going to talk about some of the portions of it. And it's full of really strong language.
1: It is. It's pretty. You, you get a feel for where, where Orson decided to, to narrow it down for the Doctrine and Covenants. Because it is uh, that sort of language all the way through. Things like, Their names shall not be found, neither the names of their fathers nor the names of their children, written in the book of the law of God, saith the Lord of hosts. Or, uh, My bones do quake while it maketh manifest. The vivid shaft of lightning is actually was taken and put into the scriptures where where there are wailing and gnashing of teeth. These things I say not of myself. Therefore, as the Lord speaketh, he will also fulfill. And they who are of the high priesthood, whose names are not found written in the book of the law or found to have apostatized. It shall be done to them as the children of the priest, as will be found in the second chapter and 61st and 62nd verses of Ezra. Uh, I don't know if we want to go and read Ezra, but it's not kind things. and And again, we're talking about this is this is apostasy, what he's doing. this is terrible. this is bad, bad stuff.
0: It's interesting because it is bad stuff and it's kind of apocalyptic language, but in it, he's talking about legal inheritances too, right? But he's really tying it in with spiritual inheritances.
1: Uh, I'm, I I'm think it's, at this point, honestly, I think he's talking entirely physical inheritances, but yeah, he does tie it to the book, and their names won't be in it. Well, no, but this is what
0: I mean. So he is talking yeah, about physical okay. inheritances, but what he does is he conflates it, so it's not... It's not just a legal land deal that we're talking about. He says, here's here's a quote, he says, And all of those who consecrate properties and receive inheritances legally from the bishop, and also their manner of life, their faith, and works, and also of the apostates who apostatize after receiving their inheritances, it is contrary to the will and commandment of God that those who receive not their inheritance by consecration agreeably to his law, which he has given, that he may tithe his people to prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning. And, and yeah. this this is what I wanted to point out that it's very easy for us to sort of separate the two things. Um, so as LDS members now reading our scriptures, we would re- read this as a spiritual matter, but when it was written, it wasn't a spirit, just a spiritual matter. That's what I wanted to point out.
1: Yeah. Uh, now there's another one. So W. W. Phelps, who, who had this letter written to him, he possessed the view and he writes about this later on that the one mighty and strong who would come to Zion in the future with specific duties, that the identity of this person was Adam, the first man. So this goes back to the, the Adam-God theory almost. It's one mighty and strong is Adam. Uh, after quoting DNC 85, 7 through 8, Phelps explains, uh, now this revelation was sent to me in Zion and has reference to the time when Adam comes at the beginning of our eternal lots of inheritances, according as our names are found in the book of the law of the Lord while the fools that received the priesthood like the fool that took his one talent and hid it or reached out to steady the ark, will find themselves where the rich man did in hell with plenty of fire, but no water. So now we have two good explanations. Oliver Cowdery tells us this is definitely Edward Partridge and it was an either or. And W.W. Phelps gives us a very clear, this is Adam and he's the one who gets this letter directly from Joseph, right? He was there, he was writing and, and it's when Adam comes. So, Case closed, right? We all know who this person is,
0: right? And I, I'm going to just point out that 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 part is going to come up later on after Absolutely. Brigham Young takes part, but we'll we'll get to it. So uh,
1: uh, that's where I was going to go next, unless okay. you had anything nope. else in the W.W. Phelps time period.
0: Well, okay. So this is written. Does anything come directly out of this letter
1: at the time? I don't think so. This is all gets compiled by Orson Pratt later on. Exactly. Got those those scriptures, and then. W. W. Phelps is explaining those scriptures after Orson Pratt has clarified. But Orson believed the Lord would raise up a special servant to whom he would reveal the pattern of the temple in the city of Zion. Orson thought that this was more of a prophecy of something that would be fulfilled. And so this letter that I quoted by W. W. Phelps, that he is rebutting Orson Pratt's view.
0: 1905 is when the Desert News makes... Thank you. And the church makes it was quoted
1: in, in yeah. 1905. Yeah. We'll get there. That's that's later. Uh, But yeah, Orson Pratt, he's talking about this is a future prophecy and W.W. Phelps is basically saying not only is it future, we're talking about Adam.
0: Right, exactly. And so they're talking about Adam and this is going to come into what you're just talking about with Orson Pratt and W.W. Phelps with Brigham Young. So let's... Now Joseph Smith has died, Partridge has died, Joseph was sealed to his two daughters, all that's in the past. That's a decade past, two decades past. And now Brigham Young is here, and this scripture keeps popping up for different church leaders. Why does it keep popping up?
1: I think because in the part that we we didn't read, well, this has we should list the specifics of this person who is mighty and strong. Uh, he holds the scepter of holds the scepter of power. He's clothed with a light covering, his mouth shall shall utter utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth. And this is, I think, the key line. One of his traits is to set in order the house of God. And what gets kind of implied there, is that the house of God has fallen out of order, that that the leaders who are currently there, you know, that man who was called of God and appointed, as it says in the next verse, who's steadying the ark, he's going to fall. And so it sets up this perfect set of conditions for people who don't like what the prophet's saying. They now can excuse themselves as, I'm the one mighty and strong. I have the, the scepter of power, I'm going to utter words, eternal words. I'm going to give truth to correct the prophet. And I think that is the the defining characteristic of the scripture is that it is used over and over again by people who are exactly trying to steady the ark from the LDS perspective that's in that next verse. But from their own, they see themselves as – and it's built into this. It's just asking for people to see themselves as more special and to take action.
0: Right, and it also conflates this idea of if there's something you don't like in the church or with the leadership that maybe they're getting too far away. So this is actually, if you think about it, a loophole for Mormons to express dissent because here it is saying that the church can get out of order.
1: Absolutely, and in scripture, right? In it's scripture. right there, uh, and you have to ask yourself, how, how would I know if it was out of order? I think that's the the humble approach. And the, the perhaps a little more prideful approach is, well, I know it's out of order, and I am the man to fix it.
0: Exactly. And so that's why it's going to keep coming up over and over and over again. And so what's interesting is, if you're the prophet, this scripture doesn't really bode well for you, right?
1: Right. Again, unless you have all this history that wasn't included in the scriptures of who this is talking about, either Adam or Edward Partridge. Again, when we talk about all these people, remember, they didn't have access to any of what I just went through or what Lindsay just went through as to how this came about. They only have the two verses to go off of. Another thing that's interesting is that it does talk about the house of God um, a lot in conjunction with this and that you kind of have to take house of God not literally being the temple – that needs to be set in order, and that the lots are in conjunction with. You got to go to the kind of the metaphysical and state that the house of God is this the the entire church. And what's interesting, if you go to the LDS apologist sites about this, uh, and I think even in the dialogue they talk about this idea that the house of God is not literal, is inconsistent with every other term in the uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants and the uses by Brigham and Joseph, except maybe D&C one one hundred and twelve. But uh, if you go to the fundamentalists' uh, websites, they cite a whole bunch of times when um, the setting in order of the house of God will be a greater event than the restoration. This is Ogden Kraut, I'm quoting. What failed in the beginning will succeed in the end. The miracles will be greater. The number of converts will be more numerous. The power and wealth of the saints will be ever richer. And Zion, the new Jerusalem, will finally be built. And they give a whole bunch of times when the house of God is not literal, both in the DNC and in Joseph and Brigham's words. And so there's this divide over just this concept, all over the concept concept of what the house of God means due to the scripture about one mighty and strong.
0: Yeah. And that's really good. And I just, to your earlier point about people having context for it, this might make sense. If you go through and look at a list, I think the Wikipedia page has it as well, but Ogden Kraut has made a list of people who claim to be the one mighty and strong. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But if you look at it, there's not a lot in the early uh, 1840s and 50s. In fact, in the list that I have, there's two. There's James String in 1844 and then Jason W. Briggs in 1851. And then there's this whole long period of time where people don't claim it until the 1880s, and then a ton in the 20th century. So we'll get into that. But I think that that's to your point, that this context really deters people from claiming it.
1: Yeah. Uh, And just a background on James J. Strang. I know you've covered him in others, but the quick version for people who only listen to this episode, he claimed to have a handwritten letter that he was to secede, to take over after Joseph died. And... uh, And he goes up to Wisconsin with a whole bunch of members, uh, including like the couple of the three witnesses. And and Emma follows him for a short time and all sorts of things like that. Then he he sets himself up as a king and dies and, and they leave him. Joseph Smith III, actually also in the 1800s, the first document names him as One Mighty and Strong. But he would later go on to expressly deny that this applied to him. Uh, that's not me. Please don't say it. But when they first say that he should set up a church, he is named as one mighty and strong. And this Sorry. really
0: sets up the, the precedent for break-off groups. I mean, Mormonism... <laughs> We've said this before, we've said it many times, Mormonism has over 400 extant groups, meaning 400 break-offs from the original, Joseph Smith's original, quote-unquote, original church. And this is one of the big reasons why, because here it is saying that you don't need any sort of special line of authority down through the hierarchy, you can get it a different way.
1: Exactly. And you said James Briggs. I have Brighouse in Jason, 1887.
0: I have Jason Briggs claimed he was, received a revelation from God. Let's, I missed let's him
1: somehow. That. So there's also a James Brighouse in 1887 when John Taylor dies. And he writes a whole bunch of tracks that he is the one mighty and strong. And also he's Joseph Smith reincarnated. And he's also Adam. He claims all three titles. So he kind of goes completely off the deep end.
0: Wow. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, we'll get into him. Jason Briggs was one of the leaders that helped establish the RLDS Church. So, he takes he takes this, he eventually is disfellowshipped. He claimed that he received a revelation from God and that he was going to call upon the seed of Joseph Smith and then help restore Joseph Smith the 3rd I think to to power or something I can't remember the whole history but that was in uh, 1851 so he was part of the RLDS movement
1: so that may have been that first document that I was referring to yes. that, that Joseph Smith the 3rd would say out of okay I had missed the name great so after that I have John T Clark which is a big one do you want to talk about Samuel Eastman at all and B. H. Roberts? Do you have that, so or is there? Do you have
0: else? William Blair, or we? You talked about Brighouse. We already have him, but
1: I did not talk. I don't have William Blair. So Go William ahead.
0: Blair, eighteen eighty. He also took this interpretation to believe that it was Joseph Smith the third who would be. sort of reincarnated as his father. One of the interpretations, and I think Ogden Kraut agrees with this, is he believes that uh, Joseph Smith is going to be reincarnated. That's basically how Ogden Kraut, at least how I read Ogden Kraut to interpret this. So that was a popular interpretation. And so uh, William W. Blair claimed that Joseph Smith III was going to be sent in the spirit of of Joseph Smith and sort of restore the church in order. So he wasn't claiming it for himself. But I want to bring this up because this is an important thing. If you believe that sons can inherit the spirit of their father and and because a lot of people believe that joseph smith the third could that was that was not an unfamiliar idea it's not like william blair came up with it jason w briggs who i mentioned had it before too this is exactly what warren jeffs did with ruling jeffs and how he claimed power and again i talk about how ruling warren jeffs knows his early mormon documents and he would have known this he would have read about this and understood this is a way to sort of gain power from your father so William Blair is another one of those that believed it was Joseph Smith third.
1: Absolutely. So the, where we're going to differ is I've only got people who claimed it about themselves. No, You've you're fine. It, you're fine. You're good. They're claiming about others. So just that's where we'll, we'll, we can go back and forth on that. So are we ready for, for John T. Clark then? Yes, go ahead. So John T. Clark is he's an interesting fellow. Oh, we should mention right before John T. Clark that B.H. Roberts actually looks into this. Uh, he's the historian who wrote – like, the, did a whole bunch of work with history of the church. He, he researched whether the languages could support the, the Book of Mormon in the Native uh, American populations, things like that. He actually writes and asks for formal clarification on who this one mighty and strong is uh, because of James Brighouse that I was just talking about. And, and he's not sure he, what he gets. He can't decry revelation – but, but the formal interpretation of this that people are taking is wrong, and, and he's trying to get some sort of answer, and they don't really give him a good answer, and that sets us up for Samuel Eastman in 1904, and he's just another guy who, who writes a couple of tracks about being one mighty and strong, and he vanishes, but John T. Clarke reads one of Eastman's tracks. That's where he gets started, and, and this is the big one. So John T. Clark. We don't really have any papers on him. He didn't leave an autobiography. We know he worked for BYU. He served a mission on an Indian reservation. His wife died. He served in World War I, making torpedo shields for for boats that uh, were revolutionary. Puncture-proof tires. If you've ever played the game Milliborns, where you can lay down the puncture-proof tires, they were invented by John T. Clark, the Mormon, who goes on this little sidetrack based on this scripture. And he is excommunicated in 1905. Well, why would John T. Clark think he was one mighty and strong? I mean, it's kind of, he's a normal guy. He works for BYU. He serves missions. And you're going to see this as a theme too. These are strong people who really believe, who, who latch onto the scripture. Well, it turns out we do have one document about him in the archives, and that is his patriarchal blessing. It expressly states that, John T. Clark is the one mighty and strong, and it was given a – well, Joseph White Mooser uh, was the scribe for John T. Clark, and, and they write down that this is in his patriarchal blessing, um, and, he, and he creates this 165-page book of how to reform the church. It, it is described as rambling and repetitive. I'll be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. And he blames all of the problems with the book on bad proofreading. Basically, he blames it on the editor. Having just written two books, that's not fair to do. My editors were great. Uh, the two that helped me... And and I'm very glad that Grammarly, Grammarly Grammarly exists and any mistakes I made, please blame on Grammarly and myself, not my editors. He he goes on to decide not to publish this book, and then he has kind of a revelation where someone uh, appears to him, I think it's John Taylor, comes to him in a in a revelation and tells him, You know what you need to do. Yeah. So he, he publishes it was the John book.
0: Taylor. It was John Taylor that visits him in a heavenly vision.
1: Yes, and he, he publishes the book and tries to distribute it. He also records about Buried Treasure in Alpine, Utah. And uh, Lauren Woolley, which goes back to our previous podcast, Year of Polygamy. If you haven't listened to that episode and you're enjoying this one, go back and listen to that one. You get more sweet, lovely Mithrin voice. I don't know. Uh, Lauren Woolley uh, was taken on a trip to go see the Buried Treasure with – John T. Clark. And so we start to tie in with the Lauren Woolley and the FLDS very early on through this, this patriarchal blessing. And you have to wonder, what was the patriarch thinking? If you're LDS or Mormon, you can totally believe that God spoke directly to him and that he this guy really was the one mighty and strong. But that doesn't quite work out Entirely, or the patriarch was making it up. In which case, what a dangerous thing to say in someone's patriarchal blessing is that you're going to correct the church. I don't know. But uh, John B. Clark also predicted that Heber J. Grant and Charles Nibley would both die. That is, a Nibley related to Hugh Nibley, but not father of. And he had a, a vision about Japanese coming in through Mexico and invading the United States in mass. Um. Did not happen during World War II. So age 67, and he dies in Provo in, in 1932, and the followers are in total shock. Shelwell Olson, who was a strong follower of his, truly believed this was the one mighty and strong that was going to correct all the the things they saw wrong in, in the LDS church. Uh, he actually goes into the morgue And gives him a blessing to come back to life. And they give the blessing twice because he doesn't come back to life the first time. And on the second time, Show Olson says uh, he will come back, but in God's own time. He feels that this is a – he'll be resurrected. And this goes right back to those – what you were saying earlier, this idea that Joseph Smith was going to be reincarnated and, and that he was one mighty and strong or the the spirit of the father moving into the son sort of concept this this was part and parcel to Mormonism this this sort of idea of it moving from person to person or reincarnated to fulfill prophecy
0: yeah that's really good and I think I think that that is a huge part of Mormonism what you just said right there right that just encapsulates Mormon doctrine for me
1: now I've skipped ahead a little bit with his whole life but I think we need to get to... That in 1905, the LDS Church, just after he was excommunicated, they respond about this concept of one mighty and strong. Do you have the uh, the official publication that they put out? It's it's also I a long. I do.
0: So so it's a message from the first presidency. Let's see. Um. So they published it in the Desert News in on November 13th, 1905, and I believe in the Improvement Era as well. The same year. So here's the official announcement. The following has been issued by the Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints in explanation of verses 7 and 8 of section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's to be received as authoritative. The following quotation is from the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and then they quote the scripture. While that man who is called of God and appointed that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God shall fall by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning.
1: Uh, I'm going to mention two things very early on uh, that I missed that I, I should have mentioned. So John Taylor actually did speak from the pulpit about this. He said that in the time of the seventh president of this church, the church would go into bondage both temporarily and spiritually. And in that day, the day of bondage, the one mighty and strong spoken of in the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants would come. So this kind of ties in because we are in that time period where Heber J. Grant is prophet and he's number seven. And here we have the – what's his name now? Mr. Clark, John T. Clark, is, uh, has this patriarchal blessing that he's the one mighty and strong. And, and this gives a time frame. Now, remember, W.W. W. Phelps is saying that's Adam, but John Taylor is saying that this is a future person in the day of the, of the seventh president. And Brigham Young also weighs in on this. And he says the time will come when this people will be led to the brink of hell by their leaders – Then one mighty and strong will come to set the house of God in order. So this reinterpretation, it was anyone's game on who this was. Lots of people were taking different spins, but it makes sense for John T. Clark to see because they were at the sixth president of the church when he was getting this patriarchal blessing. There's a reason that he would speak out, even if he didn't feel like he was good at writing.
0: So there are, two, there are two statements that were made from the church. One in November of 1905, and then they print it in 1907 in the Improvement Era later on. So I'm going to get those for you. It is long. So I'm just going to give a quote. Um, so this is written by Joseph F. Smith, John R. Winder, and Anthony H. Lund. And this is just a quote from it. It says, quote, Now as to the one mighty and strong who shall be sent to God... Sent of God to set in order the house of God and to arrange by lot the inheritance of the saints. Who is he? What position will he hold in the church? In what manner will he come to his calling? We draw attention first of all to the fact that this whole letter to w- William W. Phelps, as well as the part afterwards accepted as the word of the Lord, related to the affairs of the church in Zion, Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, and inasmuch as through his ap- repentance and sacrifices and suffering, Bishop Edward Partridge undoubtedly obtained a mitigation of the threatened judgment against him of falling by the shaft of death like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. So the occasion for sending another to fill his station, one mighty and strong, to set in order the house of God and to arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints may also be considered as having passed away and the whole incident of the prophecy is closed. So do you want to talk about the closed prophecy interpretation versus the open prophecy interpretation
1: so i i mean i think that the uh the, the very basic there is they're saying this was really all about edward partridge it's closed it's done it was history this is not something that's going to happen in a future date whereas ogden kraut point he responds directly to this letter
0: so i'll tell you i'll tell you brian hales and uh, bill Shepherd's interpretation of this, and then you can tell us Ogden Kraut. So uh, William Shepard says this about it. He's Remember, he's the guy that wrote the dialogue article. He says, quote, "...in my opinion, the weight of evidence suggests Joseph Smith's reference to the One Mighty and Strong were not intended to be a traditional revelation. It appears to have been an inspired message with specific parameters which were to be completed within a limited time period in Jackson County, Missouri." The primary participants in this drama, Joseph Smith, W. William, William W. Phelps, and Edward Partridge, considered the information about the One Mighty and Strong to refer to events in Zion in late 1832 and early 1833. And after that time, it was not an issue. End quote. So William Shepard believes that it was a closed revelation. Brian Hales offers this. He says, quote, A second interpretation of the role of the One Mighty and Strong was also embraced by church leaders in 1905 and remains popular today. It predicts that he will come in the future to accomplish both of his stated duties, primarily, if not exclusively, in Jackson County. In their 1905 epistle, the First Presidency also stipulated, If, however, there are those who will still insist that prophecy concerning the coming of the One Mighty and Strong is still to be regarded as relating to the future, let the Latter-day Saints know that he will be a future bishop of the Church who will be with the saints in Zion, Jackson County, Missouri, when the Lord shall establish them in that land." In addition, the section heading for DNC 85 in the 1981 edition of the Doctrine yep. and Coven- Covenants states plainly, quote, one mighty and strong shall give the saints their inheritance in Zion, suggesting right. a definitive role for such a being, end quote.
1: So in the same letter where they're saying this is a closed canon historical event, they say, but if it is in the future, it's going to be in Jackson County, Missouri, and it's a bishop. And that is what Ogden Kraut responds to. He says, Furthermore, if we stop to think that if this mighty and strong does come, that he will be a future bishop, that really is enough to make a layman blush, for even he can appreciate that this one mighty and strong is to possess greater power than any of our past church presidents, and that he will set the entire house of God in order. So Ogden looks at that and says, A bishop's going to set the whole thing in order then he must be more powerful than the current 12 apostles and the, the first presidency. It's interesting how he takes their own words, and he quickly is able to turn that around. That's it from his Zion's Redemption, page 94. He also says, Since the time for the inheritances of the saints is definitely in the future, then the coming of the one mighty and strong must also be in the future if he's going to divide those inheritances. So, uh, you know, Joseph was talking about if you do this, then you will be the one mighty and strong. There's this if then that, that I think is pretty clear from Oliver Cowdery's notes. But because that didn't happen, they were driven out of Zion from the mobs. We are left with this open interpretation that Ogden Kraut can use to say it must be in the future because it didn't happen in the past.
0: Well, let Uh, let me throw another complication in it, which is, okay, so we have the closed revelation, which meant it was only in the context of legal documents and it's closed, right? The revelation does not need to be fulfilled, it's closed. Or the second interpretation, which we are just talking about, which is the house of... God needs to be restored. And the second interpretation depends on the idea of Jackson County, Missouri, right? They they say it, the Absolutely. First Presidency says it, and Brian Hales goes into great detail, the Plat of Zion and where this could be and who has claim to it and all of that. But there's also a third interpretation, which is basically that, that if you were to take the scriptural interpretation of House of God to mean a more broader sense, as in the church— Uh, then it doesn't have to be in Jackson County, Missouri. It could be the church as a whole.
1: And Ogden Kraut quotes that the house of God should be translated as kingdom of God, including the whole church. And he cites uh, the history of the church, volume six, page 184, where Joseph very clearly uses house of God as the entire kingdom of God. So yeah, it comes down to terms and thoughts. Another point is that 20 years before the turn of the century, the footnote to one mighty and strong in section 85 stated a future messenger that was added by Orson Pratt with official church approval at the time. And it remained in the doctrine and covenants for 40 years. So, uh, all the way to 1921, which is way after this whole closed Canon letter, maybe open Canon was given. Everyone who was a member understood this as it's a future messenger. And if they didn't, you could just open up the scriptures, look at the footnote future messenger it is.
0: Right. And we should point out that this is being talked about as, so it's not canonized until 1876 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so all of this time that goes by until we have John Tanner Clark that causes a lot of problems with it, it sort of goes unnoticed. Now it's in the scriptures John Tanner Clark makes a statement, the First Presidency responds, and it's only five years later that we have Alma Dare LeBaron claim to be the one mighty and strong. He claims that Joseph F. Smith is a fallen prophet. And of course, we talk about this in our LeBaron episode. And the one mighty and strong doctrine leads to the entire LeBaron group believing that they're supposed to set the church in order. And how do do they interpret that? Well, Alma's son, Ervil, believes it's his job to kill all of the people who are contending for priesthood as a leader. So he puts a blood atonement hit on Spencer W. Kimball and uh, Rulin Allred, who is the leader of the AUB group, and they actually end up murdering Rulin Allred all over this doctrine.
1: Yeah, he. Uh, I had a co-worker once who asked me, have there ever been Mormon terrorists? And I said, I don't think so. And then I had to take myself back. I forgot about the LeBarons. So the... I think this also explains a central tenet of LDS um, faith. You hear over and over that the church is in no debt, and it's in the the temple grounds and other church property debt was consummated in 1923, and they pay it off in 1973. Perhaps to to show the church is not in bondage, to try to refute that there is no day of bondage, so you don't need one mighty and strong. That they, they, this whole obsessive compulsive need to have every building paid off with cash up front so that they don't ever get into debt again might actually relate to these people who started to come out of the woodwork during Heber J. Grant's time period, the seventh president of the church, when this was all supposed to go down.
0: Which is fascinating because then you have people like Otto um, Fetting who was part of the Church of Christ which is the Temple Lot Church which he claims and this is not this has nothing to do with the Brighamite, Brighamite Mormons anymore this is all the RLDS stuff over Jackson County property the the temple lot war that continues after Brigham and the Saints head west this guy in 1927 takes a scripture and claims to be the one mighty and strong because of some of the issues with the Temple Lot case going on over in Jackson County, Missouri.
1: Yeah. Uh, Should we go to J.H. Sherwood next in no, 1936? wait, hold on. I
0: want to talk about yep. this. Just uh, Francis M. Darter believed, uh, like a Native American prophet that's restoring Christ church. Do you want to talk about him first? Because I have no, him no, before. No, go sure.
1: for it. I've got some things to add on him as soon as you've, you've got that. There is a blog called truthmarch.com still out there, that refers back to this man as the true prophet, possibly, and all the the buzz around this guy. And, and they'd go through the guy. That, he had worked for the church for a very long time because he has some good inside knowledge on how church finances work that you don't find except for in um, the book of Mammon. Another guy who worked 15 years for the church, and and he makes he talks about uh, this ties in with Lorenzo Snow. Uh, saying there will never be a presiding high priest again in the on the church, and that's why we call them church president or president of the church. Uh, it dovetails into this this whole branch of of that there's this Indian prophet, and that's who we should really be following. But people are still writing about this today, lest you think this is all in the past.
0: Yeah, Go and on. and I w- I just want to point out that the whole ghost dance movement comes from a similar idea that really was an like a Native American prophet that believed he was uh, restoring Christ's church and taking it away from the white people, um, the colonizers. That This was not an uncommon idea. This, But as we see with this one mighty and strong revelation and with um, Francis Darter, he this was his interpretation through Mormonism. So
1: there's scriptural backing for it with Samuel, the Lamanite, right? The wicked Lamanite who is teaching the, 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 or the righteous Lamanite who's up on the wall, teaching the wicked Nephites uh, to repent. It, it fits right in with the one mighty and strong rhetoric.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then we have Benjamin F. LeBaron, who he of course believes that he is uh, the one mighty and strong, not Alma LeBaron senior. And, we start to see the LeBaron group basically just to cut corners, everybody, every man in the LeBaron group for a while, the first generation thinks that they're the one mighty and strong. So we'll just make it simple. The LeBarons, all the boys in that, uh, Alma sons think that they are the one mighty and strong and they actually kill each other over it. So
1: in, in my notes, I just have all the LeBarons.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All the (laughs) LeBarons. They just, yeah. One of them is it. You take your pick. So, uh, okay. So go on to Sherwood.
1: So Sherwood, he's he's a fascinating one because he claims not only is he the one mighty and strong – this is 1936. So World War II, Heber J. Grant is going to die, and we're at the end of the time period that's been stated before. He claims he's also a literal descendant of Aaron, and that makes him the bishop that's talked about who has the right to set things in order. And this is a little-known fact, but I wrote a screenplay uh, called The Aaron – where the plot is that there is a uh, 14-year-old kid who, through a a computer glitch, is made prophet of the church again. So what if we went back to a 14-year-old prophet like Joseph Smith when he had the first vision? It's kind of a fun and whimsical concept. I never finished it. It's 99% of the way there. I just need a good, solid ending. But but this idea that there's a literal descendant of Aaron also in the scriptures – and, and he just tied that idea of that this person has to be a bishop. He can set in the whole church in order. Well, a literal descendant of Aaron immediately becomes a bishop. So, and even though I'm not a bishop, I'm the right person, and and he claims the title.
0: Yeah, and that's important too because if you look at if you look at these revelations and something I haven't been careful of saying up until now is that people have stepped forward, and because they have stepped forward does not necessarily mean they think that they're the one mighty and strong. For example, um, Francis Darter believed it was an Indian prophet. He wasn't the Indian prophet. Or uh, Otto Fetting believed that John the Baptist appeared to him and he was just the servant for John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was the mighty and strong and he was the servant for him. So I don't know if that's clear. It gets really confusing when you have personal revelation. There's
1: so many options. Uh, so the next Joseph one- Musser,
0: is that who you have next?
1: So uh, the next thing that I want to talk about, I'll let you do the next couple if you've got the, the details, but I want to talk about there's a conference report in 1945. So catch us up to 1945 and the end of... of
0: okay, so I just over- have a few. Joseph uh, W. Muster. we've talked about him many times. He is one of the early founders of Mormon fundamentalism. He started Truth Magazine. A lot of people that follow him believed that Musser had it right. Musser believed that it was Joseph Smith himself that is the one mighty and strong. And so this is a popular fundamentalist interpretation. And so Musser's interpretation gets murky because some people think that his interpretation is correct, that Joseph Smith already fulfilled it, or that Joseph Smith is going to be reincarnated. Um, and then you have a few other people that pop up Uh, John the Baptist shows up again and this has to do with the Temple Lot case. For some reason, John the Baptist happened to be a Restorationist answer to this question. I think William A. Draves in 1943 established a church and he believed that John the Baptist was the one mighty and strong. And then, so yeah, I think that leads us up to where you're at.
1: All right. Uh, And that is weird that John the Baptist just kind of gets thrown in there. So this is published... Uh, in the LDS conference report, so this is from the pulpit. Uh, this is is stated, 1945. Uh, you can find it you know, on page 91, 92 of of that year's conference report because they did it differently back then. So Latter Day Saints, beware of false teachers. When men come among you advocating the so called, there we go, so called practice of plural marriage, or when a man comes among you declaring that the church is off track and that he is one mighty and strong sent in the to set the church in order, remember that such doctrines cause dissension among the people, that they cause disputes which lead to apostasy, and the Lord condemned disputes of that kind. So my mother would read me uh, or, or quoted this. She quoted it terribly wrong, but, but she quoted it uh, a lot back when I was a kid, and I did not understand the full context at the time. But she was very cautious, of course, because of individuals. She would have been – Um, four years old when this conference report came out and it must've been something that people talked about a lot because she could quote an awful lot of it in regards to like if there was ever someone who offered an after church study group, or even if institute or seminary tried to do a special activity, she would quote this because, uh, the man who proposed to her was running an after church group where everyone loved him. He was amazingly charismatic. He knew the scriptures really well. Uh, she actually, my mother was concerned with how much I studied the scriptures as a kid because it reminded her of him that came out later. Um, but he would go on to propose to her uh, about 14 years later. So she was 19. So 15 years after this. And he would also refer to himself as one mighty and strong. And that was Arvind Shreve who died in a federal penitentiary uh, no, the state pen uh, for molesting both his sons and daughters uh, only a few years ago, which is when I got to learn about all this because my mom finally dared to talk about the history. I do so, have to
0: say that there, from our list, there is a surprising number of men that end up in prison or dead over who have subscribed to this doctrine. So I don't know yes. what the correlation is, but and, including and Joseph Smith, of Mormon actually. Murders. So, yeah. Yeah. I,
1: uh, the next one I've got is Leroy Le Wilson, who claimed to be one mighty and strong.
0: Um, Do you want to? Yeah, we all have these guys. There, gosh, there's so many. We have more LeBarons, of course, and then. I mean, the next the,
1: exciting one is the last. There's another. Brother.
0: There's another Indian prophet, uh, but he was a young white Indian. They they predicted a young young white Indian, um, who was a reincarnated Joseph Smith. That is just William Conway predicted that in 1958.
1: There's. Two Strangites who claimed the title, Alexander R. Cuffau, Cuffix, I don't know how to pronounce it, 1964, and David Roberts in 1975.
0: We have Ervil LeBaire in 1967. He's the one I talked about that murdered a lot of people. Did you say David Roberts? Yeah, you just said David Roberts. Yep. And then John W. Bryant.
1: Yep, I got him as well. Do you
0: want to talk about him?
1: I don't have a lot of details on him, just that he also claimed it.
0: He claimed that John the Beloved had visited him. um, That's right. And... So this shows up a lot, John the Baptist, John the Beloved, someone tells them to go restore the church.
1: And this is 1975. I mean, this is contemporary with, with um, you know, Spencer W. Kimball and the, the do it and missionary work. And the church is kind of coming on the main stage. And this, this idea, this concept, this meme pers- persists throughout. Uh, the next one I have is Eugene O. Walton. And he forms the restored church in Independence, Missouri. He breaks off from the reorganized church using this one mighty and strong doctrine as the concept to to form it. And I've actually been to their building over there. They don't have a whole lot of members, but it's another break off completely based on on this one scripture.
0: He actually had Cutlerite ties too. And so as you can see, all the different Mormon branches have to contend with this with this uh doctrine because it's it comes from such early mormonism 1832 we have let's see uh archie d wood in 1980s he practiced he espoused the ideas of plural marriage and he didn't go
1: john the baptist though and he didn't go john the beloved he had asriel yeah
0: that's fascinating right that's not one we hear about
1: (laughs) no (laughs)
0: Uh, and, let's. And I want to point something out. Okay, so now we're in the 1970s and now we're going to see a resurgence a lot of people in the 1980s and here's why. This is my theory, I'm going to pause it. Because what happens, Mithrin, in 1978 in the LDS church?
1: I don't... I was one year old. I don't know. I'm sorry.
0: They lift the priesthood ban and the temple ban oh, yeah. on black Oh my
1: gosh, so all Mormons. these people were were... Founded on racism. Yes. That's so,
0: So the theory is, and we know this from fundamentalism, many fundamentalists saw yeah. the church as completely out of order, completely corrupt. And so you will see this, for them, this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now the church is completely off its rocker, completely out of order. And, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's Brian Hales that says that year alone, uh, convert baptisms to the AUB triples from the LDS church. Like you know, so many people are leaving the LDS church and converting to fundamentalism. And up until this point, you have Mormon fundamentalists saying a rote prayer, facing the temple as if it's Mecca, saying something like, we pray that the doors will be open to us once again. And after 1978, when black people are allowed in the temples, many fundamentalist groups see the temples as corrupt, start building their own temples. And I uh, think that the LDS church is completely off its rocker. So now all of a sudden in the 1980s, we have a lot of one mighty and strongs pop up.
1: And it makes sense because there was such strong doctrine and it was taught for so long and so forcefully that you could never give the priesthood to one drop of Negro blood or any of those, I mean, yeah. horrible things. But but yeah, I, so people were following what they thought was The right path and you end up with people willing to lead them
0: so we have let's see i've got frank miller rogery billings the lafferty brothers
1: lafferty brothers do you have much more on the lafferty's
0: we've talked about them in the podcast before but go ahead and give us a their their story's very interesting
1: under the banner of heaven just go go read it that's That's all I'll say. Uh, It's worth it, and it's fascinating and terrifying. And that's where an awful lot of people I know learned about the various penalties from the temple for the first time, was reading about what these guys, who were fundamentalists, who believed this whole one mighty and strong doctrine, they went out and decided to kill people according to the penalties.
0: Yeah, and they were were fundamentalists, but they were still LDS. I mean, a lot of them— I mean, this is where we get ties into the dream mine which goes back to yeah. what you were saying earlier about this hidden gold um it's all tied into this doctrine
1: and and Ogden Kraut uh, you know he's out there publishing regularly at this point and leading courses on the Constitution and how the the church is going to reform the government of the United States after a nuclear holocaust and that we should pray for nuclear holocaust and and these sorts of ideas are are, floating around and he's writing about one mighty and strong during this time period as well. And, and it feeds into, yeah, like you said, the dream mine and, uh, J. golden Kimball and all of these things kind of get all connected together. I don't know much about art Bulla. He's the next one I have. And he has a church that's bullite that is actually founded by him uh, after this one mighty and strong. I know it doesn't last long, but that's all I've got.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't have a lot on him, but I do have something on the RLDS Church. So okay. there, there's a whole movement in the LDS Church happening right now. Um, the Remnant Church, the Denver Snuff Rites, people that are sort of going back to the fundamentals of church history and church doctrine, without trying to not accept plural marriage. And I know a lot of those Remnant believers listen to this podcast. This, what I'm talking about, is a different remnant church. This is uh, the remnant church that broke off from the RLDS church. So they're kind of RLDS fundamentalists. And they believed in the 1980s that Frederick Niels Larson, who was the president of the remnant church, is the one mighty and strong. So they believe that he's setting the church in order. So that's just an aside. And then, um, of course, we have the famous Brian David Mitchell, who— oh,
1: Before we get Brian M- David oh, Mitchell, this is this is my own— I've got to go Vicki Singer. So there's a guy by the name of John Singer. He's up in Idaho and he pulls out a gun because I, I, I pull in memories from when I was in high school and we studied the, the law enforcement case over water rights on his neighbors. And he did this pretty frequently. Um, and one of the neighbors finally gets sick of it and calls the sheriff's department in and the sheriff's department shows up and this time he had never cocked his gun before, but, but John Singer cocks the gun and the, sh- uh, the new deputy. And the sheriff is behind Singer. He sees the gun cock, realizes that things have changed. This is the, the official story by the police. Uh, he pulls his gun out and shoots John Singer once in the back to save his new young deputy. The Singers claim that uh, the, the deputies uh, shot him nine times in the back. Uh, that comes from the, the bullet split, the one bullet into nine fragments, uh, according to the official story. Regardless, John Singer had read this One Mighty and Strong, declared himself to be the One Mighty and Strong, started polygamy up in Idaho. He had a couple of wives. He dies uh, from this gunshot wound, and a man named Adam Swapp, who was living with them, steps up, marries Vicki Singer, and takes over the uh, – the group and it becomes the swap and singer breakoff group of Mormonism, where they they start doing some really funky practices, and then there ends up being a standoff with the police where they have the sons with a sniper rifle up on the top of the house, they're playing loud music. Uh, the, the police are, the helicopters have lights that they're shining in to keep them from sleeping. And then they, they try to move in a SWAT team to just get Adam swap and pull him out. Part of that team is a dog group, uh, a policeman and his dog. The policeman gives a command of the dog. The dog doesn't respond. He stands up and gives another one and Adam swap shoots him under the armpit and kills him. And, uh, he's still in prison. And Vicky Singer still advocates for his release. Again, this is just uh, one more crazy where they sang and and praised that one mighty and strong was John Singer, actually, not Adam Swap, And that they all believed that he would be – that John Singer would be reincarnated any day. And they were doing the standoff, the reason given by the people who were were there and and that the kids were willing to put the sniper rifles up on the, the roof against the police was that John Singer's reincarnation was eminent and that this move against them was the start of the end of days. So it ties really closely with the end of days. And if you are a member of any of these groups and you're looking when we're talking about another one of these groups, you're like, those guys are crazy. I just want to say, you know, this is something that's led to all these offshoots of all these different religions. Anything in Mormonism, any branch of it has had an offshoot because of this scripture. Now, Brian David Mitchell. we got to get to Brian David Mitchell.
0: He's made famous for kidnapping Elizabeth Smart, abducting her, and taking her as a plural wife, or as I call it, hostage.
1: Hostage, yes. Yeah,
0: he, he basically took her, and this is a story that's kind of close to my heart because I was around, and I knew Brian David Mitchell. I worked downtown. He would come into the store, and I remember him bringing in, bringing... Wanda Barzee, his first wife, and they would use the bathroom. And uh, it was ZCMI for a time, and then it was uh, Meyer and Frank when I worked there. But then I remember seeing him downtown with two women and thinking, oh, that's either a daughter or he has another wife. But talk about what Brian David Mitchell thought.
1: Well, I'm, again, he he gives himself a, uh, a claim to being prophet because of this one mighty and strong concept. And I don't know. I don't know what else you want me to say about it other than he was really messed up. He kidnapped a young girl who uh, did nothing wrong in the world other than her father hired a contractor. And this guy was a subcontractor for working on the house. And he spotted her and decided that he was going to abduct her someday and make her a plural wife.
0: Yeah. And, and again... By he, force. Yeah, like, he and others... I remember I was working—I was probably 14. I was working in uh, the downtown shelter for a young women's activity We were for for the LDS church. We were passing out dinner at the shelter, and a homeless man came up to me and slipped something in my hand, and it was a piece of paper. And it was all about the stem of Jesse, and, and then it quoted the one mighty and strong. And I remember being so confused, because I had never seen LDS scripture being used in that way before— but the note had asked me to meet him at a certain spot, and that I had a calling or something, and my parents were like, throw that away, you know? But you're I, right. <laughs> I think that this is one of those scriptures that people that have mental illness, too, can really have some interesting interpretations. I would say um, it's probably very dangerous if you have mental illness or you're doing a lot of drugs, because the implications are really, really dangerous if you think about it. And, and unfortunately for the Elizabeth Smart case, that happened. I want to talk about a few more modern people. Have you heard of Val Brinkerhoff? I have not. Okay, so according to Val Brinkerhoff by his own website, he was a BYU professor. He retired from BYU in 2015, and he has published 30 magazine articles and 14 books, nine of which he wrote. And his latest book is called The Remnant Awakens. And his book is all about the rising up of Native Americans in the last days to fulfill the covenants from the Book of Mormon. And I've been looking about this. His stuff seems pretty radical uh, for me. It's very Denver Snuffer-like. And I can't find if he's been excommunicated or not. He seems to have a large following of LDS people, especially very conservative, politically conservative LDS people. But what was interesting is I was reading a forum where people were discussing his writings, and they said that in one of his books, Val Brinkerhoff quotes from Denver Snuffer. And it's so unfortunate because Denver Snuffer has been excommunicated, so that delegitimizes uh, Val Brinkerhoff. And it's really interesting because I think this whole new remnant following this movement that's happening in the LDS church, the Denver Snuffers, the uh, Preppers, um, the Julie Rose, all of these are going off of this same basis for the scripture. And if you go to LDS Liberty forums or the ultra-right Conservative, politically conservative members of the church—they're talking about these doctrines. They're talking about the One Mighty and Strong, and they're talking, talking and pulling up fundamentalist sources to back it up, even though they're faithful L- LDS.
1: And they're legitimate historical records. These—they're right? not making things up. I, I want to emphasize that this goes all the way back. And if you think about it, was not Joseph Smith Jr. in a way? one mighty and strong he rejects the the doctrines of the day he let's see if we could just read the claims one more time uh, he hold, claimed to hold the scepter of power if you just apply a priesthood to that power clothed with light for a covering he definitely changed clothes with garments and and i mean Pillars of light that descended from the sun, all sorts of ideas that, that come around that. Utter eternal words, bowels were a fountain of truth, set in order the house of God, arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints. The descriptions of one mighty and strong apply to this, this kid who started it all. It's inherent in the Mormon story that the current leadership is wrong, whether that's King Noah and his priests – uh, and Abinadi comes to correct them, or Samuel the Lamanite, or Joseph Smith, or Everill Le Baron, or uh, John T. Clark, or whoever it is. It's built into the mythos. But I really want to get this across. If you're in any of these groups,
0: yeah. And and this is this so, is what so, I say too. Fundamentalists aren't crazy people. They have no. they're actually the ones that are following the the documents, right? And and not taking creative interpretations. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a forum right now where they're discussing the 1834 patriarchal blessing that Joseph Smith Jr. received from his father, where uh, they call him the fountain of truth. And they use this coded language that sort of sets Joseph Smith up to, to be that. Um, These people are piecing together puzzles of uh, early church history and scripture and finding the patterns there. Um, And while it does lead to dangerous things like we said. You know, I was kind of um, flippant about how we went through that list a little bit. But there's nothing flippant about it. I mean, people take this very seriously. And it's when I say Mormon doctrine is compelling and heady, this is what I'm talking about. Those That language that W.W. W. Phelps records is not for the faint of heart. It's a very strong language. It is very seductive language. And if you get it in your head that, or you have a revelation that, you know, John the Baptist has showed you something, that language is going to be a, a guiding star and it's powerful stuff.
1: Right. And and I, when I say any of these groups, I mean, including the LDS, including if anyone comes to you saying, I am one mighty and strong, it is a good indicator. Now it doesn't, you don't have to just ignore the person, but it's a good indicator. It is correlated highly with, uh, leveraging family and friends for money, time, and resources for setting themselves up for murder. There's a high correlation with people who murder and people who claim to be one mighty and strong for um, for breaking off. And I don't think that the Latter-day Saint leaders were terribly wrong. And this might come because of my mother and her reciting it to me re- repeatedly Beware of false teachers when men come to you advocating uh, or de- declaring the church is off track and he is one mighty and strong, sent to set the church in order. Remember that such doctrines cause dissension among the people. I mean they, they go into this – it leads to apostasy, which that's not a problem for me. Uh, or, or, but But I think it is a good warning label. It's something to be cautious of because it is so highly correlated with, as you said, mental illness, with murder and with leveraging and and abusing friends and family who are around them.
0: And I will point out, so you just talked about Art Bola, who is someone who claimed to be the one mighty and strong. Um, And you said you didn't know much about him. He actually has a website, artbola.com. Yes, he does. It's current. So you guys should read that. Go to it. I'll link to it. And you can see, he has a whole PDF on the one mighty and strong, and you can see how this, this plays out. And again, I think that these are reasonable interpretations. I don't think... <laughs> I, just like what you said, it's it's a dangerous doctrine, and put in the wrong hands is dangerous, but the way that people are interpreting it aren't necessarily crazy or wrong. It's a logical conclusion to this doctrine. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. Anything else we want to talk about before I let you go?
1: Um... I think that covers everything that we wanted to cover, including all the individuals. Uh, I really wanted to find the guy who, who did the bomb uh, at the BYU devotional, Cody Judy, and see if he ever claimed one mighty and strong. He's not listed on any of the Wikipedias. He isn't listed. Um, I, may, I may not – that may be a dead link. But uh, –
0: well, maybe a listener out there can let us know. And I'm also curious yeah. to learn more about Val Brinkerhoff to see what his status with the church is. Sure
1: enough, Cody Judy, the prophecy, one mighty and strong, and he appeared on stage. He he did claim it as well. So that's one that isn't in the Wikipedia articles if you're going to go back and look what what Lindsay links. Uh, that is another just fascinating case. He, he walked into a BYU devotional... With a bunch of books claiming it was a bomb, and asked the H- Howard W. Hunter, who was not prophet at the time, to read a piece of paper that was releasing the current twelve and putting Cody Judy in as the the prophet of the church. Again, guys, it is really highly cor- cor- correlated with some really odd behavior.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that, and I will say it. This appeared to this occurred to me that while the one might and strong is very exclusionary towards African-Americans, people of African descent, you will see that in uh, a lot of the modern interpretations, a lot of racist interpretations. However, it is more inclusive when it comes to native American people. There is a potential and a loophole that it could be a quote unquote Lamanite that maybe, you know, the, the person who could save the church in these latter days is a person of color, just not black. Touche. So um, that, that is me attempting to uh, maybe find some possible silver lining. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm with you. I would caution anyone uh, anyone following. If someone claims to be a prophet and tells you they're a prophet, they probably aren't one. That's going to that's gonna be my, my advice.
1: Time to be a little more skeptic.
0: Time to be a little bit more skeptic. Okay, well, Mithrin, thank you so much. And where can we find out more about your projects? Can you plug that again for us?
1: I will, happily. So, uh, again, I the books are coming out April 20th. They are going to be on a website called douncy.com. Um,
0: Do you claim to be the one mighty and strong?
1: I will never claim such a thing. I got terrified away from it back when I read... It, and and we studied the swap swinger singer group., um, but I can see the appeal. I can see how people could really want to be someone who could fix what was wrong if if a bishop offended them, if they they knew there were issues in the history, I, I, I get it. I totally do.
0: Well, I'm just lucky that I'm a lady, so I don't have to ever worry about being the one who need strong. So,
1: I'm an apostate now. I don't have to worry about it anymore. No worries
0: there. Yeah. Well, no, Wait. That Apostates can come
1: start their own things. Oh, I know. maybe I should start yeah, a cult.
0: You, you gotta. Well, you have a book about that. I heard. So. I do. Yeah. Okay.
1: Brilliant.
0: Well, thanks, Mithrin, um, and we'll link everything up there.
1: Really. Thank you, man.
0: to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.